Um, but we're, we're looking at Joel today, and I don't know if you remember the Canadian author, uh, William P. Young, and uh, he's known as uh, Paul Young, and uh, who I'll mention him later, but he has a real pastor's heart, and he has a philosophy that when he meets and spends t- any, a time with a person, he would look at them in such a way that says there is no other person or moment more important to him than the person before whom he stands at that moment. And I thought that's a real kind of a a real quality that we could all learn from, that actually we're not distracted by the the vibration in our phone or the fact that we want to tell our story, that we actually want to hear what this other person is saying. And I think it's a real gift when you meet people like that. And I think William P. Young, or Paul Young, has that, has that gift. And, and I have to say, I do kind of strive for it. I have to admit, I don't always uh, hit the target. Um, but I kind of just think this, this evening that you are really important to me. And I really want to kind of honor you as I kind of share in the best Brian Pillion way uh, what I can about this trail, this final visit of four uh, to the book of Joel. It's a rather strange book. Uh, scholars have struggled even where to position it in history. Is it 9th century, 8th century, 7th century, 6th century, 5th or 4th century? But actually, um, I really... I, I kind of found that really interesting. I, and when Andy uh, spoke about the prophetic, I was saying, oh, wouldn't it be great to talk about the prophetic? But when I was kind of looking at chapter 3, I was struck by this use of the word, kind of almost like the, the day of the Lord, this sense of judgment. And so I want to just you to come along with me and see uh, if you can follow me as I explore today's reading uh, that we've had it part read. Because I think judgment is a really important word. Well, for the people at the time, chapter 3 was very much about a hope sometime. Someday in the future, uh, they as a people would be rescued again. And uh, one day, when when the day of the Lord came, all would be well. Justice would prevail. And they would be vindicated. The people of God would be kind of welcomed. Personally, though, I did think when you think of what the prophet was saying, it didn't solve their, the problems they had at that moment. Um, but it did actually, uh, it, the words were hope-filled and they gave solace to the people. But it made me ask the question, how did the people of promise, the chosen ones, get here again? Again, they were in such a state such a position and such a situation. It's kind of one of those deja vu moments. You think, oh golly, they're in this place again where they've kind of been in great places with God, but now they're kind of screwed and they're in really a tricky place. There is a lovely poem which I I rather like. It's by Joseph Mallams, written in the uh, late Victorian period, and you may know it. "'Twas a dangerous cliff, as they freely confessed, though to walk near its crest was so pleasant. But over its terrible edge there had slipped a duke and full many a pheasant. So the people said something would have to be done, but their projects did not at all tally. Some said put a fence round the edge of the cliff, some an ambulance down in the valley." For the cliff is all right if you're careful, they said, and if folk even slip in a dropping, it isn't the slipping that hurts them so much as the shock down below when they're stopping. 
<laughs> so day after day, as these mishaps occurred, quick forth would these rescuers sally to pick up the victims who fell off the cliff with their amb ambulance down in the valley. Then an old sage remarked, it's a marvel to me that people give far more attention to repairing results than from stopping the cause uh, when they'd much better aim at prevention. Let us stop at its source, all this mischief, cried he. Come, neighbors and friends, let us rally. If the cliff we will fence, we might almost dispense with the ambulance down in the valley. Better put, put a strong fence around the top of the cliff than an ambulance down in the valley. And so the poem goes on, and the conclusion really is prevention is better than cure. And in a sense, I was thinking, how could... The, the Jewish, the people of God, the Israelites, the Israelis, how could they break this cycle, this cycle of crisis, capture, repentance, freedom, and on and on it seems to go as we read the Old Testament. So I want to remind you of three great stories that for me set the scene for today's scriptures. Right at the start of the book uh, of the Bible, in the beginning, we're introduced to a mystery, mystery with a capital M. You only need to look into space on a dark and a clear night and wonder. I don't know if you've seen the first test images from the Euclid uh, European Telescope, and this project's aim is to create a, a three-dimensional map of the universe, explore dark matter, energy, and gravity, and it will far exceed any uh, previous pictures, and it will complement the information we've gained from the Hubble telescope, which most of you will know is mainly optical and ultraviolet spectrums, and the James Webb telescope, which is mainly the infrared spectrum. And you've got these amazing, incredible, fantastic, wonderful, awe-inspiring pictures. Genesis 1-2 uh, says this, Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Ruach Ihlim, Hebrew for the Spirit of God, working on his own. The invisible, personal, uh, vitalizing presence of the Creator who engages with the dark disorder and brings about order, life, and beauty. But the narrative goes on. It doesn't hang around and we find that God looks at what has been created. After all, it is there, to use a Trinitarian term, self-expression or speech act, because everything is holy, spiritual, valuable, meaningful, because it's God's handiwork. And all creation sings and speaks that it is good. And that verse, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. All was good. The second story is also found in Genesis, uh, two, Genesis, and it's the second creation story, really, where humankind decides by incredibly poor decision-making that they will tr not imitate and reflect God as, good, as a good image-bearer would do, but we will freely choose to reject the Creator and follow another voice. In this story, the voice you may remember is the voice of the snake. And we no longer see God as a friend, but as a rival, a threat. We want to decide who is good, who is evil, uh, who would die, who would live. And we learned about fear and distrust. So we became almost like God, the decider, the judge. 
Now, Brian McLaren, well-known in the emerging church movement, uh, in this book, We Make the Road by Walking, says this. We constantly make a crucial choice. Do we eat from the tree of aliveness so that we continue to see and value the goodness of creation, so reflect the image of the living God? Or do we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, constantly misjudging and playing God as a result, mistreating our fellow creatures? It's a good and beautiful thing to be an image bearer of God, but it's also a big responsibility. We can use our intelligence to be creative and generous, or to be selfish and destructive. We can use our physical strength to be creative and generous or selfish and destructive. We can use our sexuality to be creative and generous or to be selfish and destructive. We can use our work, our money, our time, our other assets to be creative and generous or to be selfish and destructive. Think of your hand. It can make a fist or it can extend in peace. It can wield a weapon or it can play a violin. It can point in derision or it can reach out in compassion. It can steal or it can serve. If the first creation story is about the gift of being human, the second story is about the choice all humans live with day after day. To be alive means to bear responsibility, the image of God. It means to stretch out your hand, to take from the tree of aliveness and to join in God's creative healing work. So, we now know that we could do better. We can decide who is good and who is bad. We can decide deliberately or by neglect who deserves to die, and I guess also who deserves to live. But then there's this third story. The third story is remarkable because whilst humankind was trying to rope God into their plots and schemes, the Trinity is still focused on the big picture of blessing the world through humankind. And now the game plan is that it's to be through one people group who will be a blessing to all. So in Abraham and Sarah, we have a story that tells us that we are special and that the Trinity uh, have a plan for us. By faith, trusting we can be alive and bringing blessing to everyone and everything. But what does it tell us about faith? Faith is stepping off the map of what's known and making a new trail by walking into the unknown. It's responding to God's call to adventure, stepping out on a quest for goodness, trusting that the status quo isn't as good as it gets, believing a promise that a better life is possible. And that kind of is, is where the people of Israel, God's chosen ones, were starting. That was their plan. That was what they were meant to go and do. It was pretty clear. And kind of in a way, we need to back up and be reminded of this is, this is the game plan. This is our game plan. Uh, and this is where we need to sometimes go to kind of establish where we should go. The people, the blessing though, seemed to have taken on the image of those around them. And they lived a life that was capricious, angry, and uncaring. At the same time, they created an image in their minds of a God that was capricious, wrathful, and at times unloving. They had learned to protect themselves and exclude others. They learned they were special, and they learned that others were unclean. They learned that they were right, others were wrong. And it was a sort of a form of syncretism they took on all from the cultures around them. And that just doesn't sound like that original plan because the original plan was they needed to be a blessing. 
And so as I, as I read Joel, I see this as a warning. This is what happens when you do not walk hand in hand with Papa God. Jesus told a beautiful story. There was once a father with two sons. And um, you, might, you might recognize that, that story of the prodigal son. That lovely story where there was a, the, the father had, saw his son leave with his portion and fritter it away. And then one day, that son came back, really kind of in a way, not expecting anything. And there's this lovely moment, this lovely image um, that you have almost the father sees the returning, broken, lost son. And he doesn't wait. He doesn't stand there in anticipation, although he was in anticipation. He actually runs, and you kind of capture, have this embrace, this, this moment where the, the lost has been found. And, and Father God, or the Father, just embraces. And I just love that, this sense of being rescued, loved, restored. That's kind of communion, just reminds us of this rescue, this love, and this restoration. And that's very beautiful. You see, Joel talks about repentance, the day of the Lord and judgment. And few people, if any, understand what this judgment means and how it will work out. Yet how easy it is that we take on the role of judge. We are the most brilliant judges that we take this role on. And we issue judgments, often unjust. They're often harsh. They forget about love. They lack mercy. Remember what mercy is? It means, means compassion or forgiveness shown towards somebody whom it's within our own power to punish or harm. And grace. Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve, forgiveness and eternal life. But grace comes through the conduit of faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, grace cannot be earned by getting our lives together first. Jesus didn't come for good people. He came for sinners. And I, I just think how we are so quick to judge, to think badly of people, not to think well of them, not to find out the truth. I mean, that is really seen on Facebook and on the media. I mean, now the BBC and various uh, agencies talk about fact-checking. We often don't check our facts. We jump to conclusions. I've seen some of the things that go on Facebook when somebody says something quite innocuous and simple, and people jump down their throat. And you think, we don't need to be part of that. We can do this differently. The Israelites kind of did all these things. They actually took on what was around them. They became like those people and actually got themselves into real hot water. They, so... We need to learn not to be so hard. We need to fact check. We need to hold fire. Find out and, and, and have a bit of grace and a bit of mercy. And this is the calling of the people of God. It's not very nice sometimes because actually we have to live differently. Oh, that we could just jump in and condemn with everyone else to speak badly of somebody because it's rather fun. It's called gossip sometimes. And actually we can say things about people we'd never say to their face. Absolutely not. In fact, we sometimes say them, um, and then when we actually meet them, we're all sweetness and light. And you think, what duplicity? 
What's that's kind of double faced? That's not kingdom life. And actually, if being honest and true is a real, a real gift, and it's our calling. Because we're talking about following in the footsteps of Jesus, the God of the second, third, and fourth chances. There's a story somewhere about forgiveness. Seven, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times, 70. Uh, and judgment, equally, is God's prerogative. And I do think that our concepts of judgment are totally different to what the truth of judgment is because we take it purely from our own background, our own junk our own, how we've perceived what we perceive as injustice. And actually, we've kind of got to think, no, actually, God is the judge. He will do it his way. We are called to live differently. And we're not called to judge. We're called to love. We're actually called to gather people and say, come, come. You come to the foot of the cross. Ask God's forgiveness. Come, let us dine together. Let's eat together. So just think about it. Next time, try, if you're going to, rather than judgment, think where the heart and the cloak of the Father, of that Father who reached out and just welcomed the, lo the lost son. Now, I mentioned Paul Young at the start. Um, I don't know if you've read The Shack. Uh, the film is excellent, and it's a film of a book. And I know and Trish and I have enjoyed watching the film a couple of times. We've both read the book a couple of times as well. And it is actually in some ways incredibly harrowing. And it does, but it does paint some absolutely wonderful pictures that give us a real kind of understanding of who the Trinity is and some wonderful insights, I think, into the idea of what judgment's all about. It's about a man called Mackenzie. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to truly paint the story. I, I don't want to give spoilers, but what it is. See if you can follow me on this. Well, Mackenzie suffered a really great loss, the kind of a loss that would break many of us here. And there is a scene, though, where he's asked to take the place of God as judge because he's so f angry, so angry at what he feels God has done. And I'm going to try and kind of capture this just by drawing on a few extracts. And uh, the, the, the she is wisdom, okay, the voice of wisdom. And she says this, Judging requires that you, uh, that you think yourself superior over the one you judge. Well, today you'll be given the opportunity to put all your ability to, to use. Come on, she said, patting the back of the chair. I want you to sit here now. And just what will I judge, said Mackenzie. Not what? She paused and moved to the side of the desk. But who? His discomfort was growing in leaps and bounds, and sitting in an oversized regal chair didn't help. What right did he have to judge? Sure, in some measure, he probably was guilty of judging almost everyone he had met, and many that he hadn't. Mackenzie knew that he was thoroughly guilty for being self-centered. How dare he judge anyone else? All his... Uh, all his judgments have been superficial, based on appearance and actions, things easily interpreted by whatever state of mind or prejudice that supported the need to exalt himself or to feel safe or to belong. He also knew that he was starting to panic. Your imagination, she interrupted his train of thoughts, is not serving you well at the moment. 
goes on. So who is it that I'm supposed to judge? God, she paused, and the human race. She said it as if it was of no particular consequence. It simply rolled off her tongue as if this were a daily occurrence. Mackenzie was dumbfounded. You have got to be kidding. Why not? Surely there are many people in your world you think deserve judgment. There must be at least a, a few who are to blame for so much of the pain and suffering you have. What about the greedy who feed off the poor of the world? What about the ones who sacrifice their young children to war? What about the men who beat their wives, Mackenzie? What about the fathers who beat their sons for no reason to assuage their own suffering? Don't they deserve judgment? And it continues. And he said, at the end, he said, yes, God is to blame. This is the accusation that hung in the room and the gavel fell in his heart. Then, she said with finality, if you're able to judge God so easily, then you can certainly judge the world. And she spoke without emotion. You must choose two of your children to spend eternity with God in heaven and the new earth, but only two. What? And you must choose three of your children to spend eternity in hell. Mackenzie couldn't believe what he was hearing and started to panic. Mackenzie, her voice now came as calm as and wonderful at first he heard it. I'm only asking you to do something you believe God does. He knows every person ever conceived and he knows them so much deeper and uh, clearer than you will ever know your own children. He loves each one according to his knowledge of the being of that son or daughter. You believe he'll condemn most to an eternity of torment, away from his presence and apart from his love. Is that not true? Well, I suppose I do. I've just never thought about it like this. He was stumbling over his words. I just assumed that somehow God could do that. Talking about hell was sort of an abstract conversation, not about anyone that I truly... Mackenzie hesitated. He realized that he was about to say, not about anyone that I truly cared about. So you suppose then that God does this easily, but you cannot. Come on, Mackenzie, which three of your five children will be sentenced to hell? Katie is struggling with you the most right now. She treats you badly and has said some hurtful things to you. Perhaps she's the first and most logical choice. What about her? You're the judge, Mackenzie. You must choose. I don't want to be the judge, he said, standing up. This couldn't be real. How could God ask him to choose among his own children? There is no way he could sentence Katie or any of his other children to eternity in hell just because they'd sinned against him. Even if Katie or Josh or John or Tyler committed some heinous crime, he still wouldn't do it. He couldn't. For him, it wasn't about their performance. It was about his love for them. I can't do this. You must. I can't do this. You must. I will not do this. You must. I can't. I, I won't. Finally, he looked up at her, pleading with his eyes, could I go instead? If you need somebody to torture for eternity, I'll go in their place. Would that work? Could I do that? He fell at her feet, crying and begging. Please don't, please don't let me go for my children. Please, I'd be happy to. Please, I'm begging you. Please, please. Mackenzie, Mackenzie, she whispered. And her words came like a splash of cool water on a brutally hot day. Her hands touched his cheeks as she lifted him to his feet. Looking at her through blurring tears, he could see her smile was radiant. 
Now you sound like Jesus. You've judged well, Mackenzie, and I'm proud of you. But I haven't judged anything, said Mackenzie in confusion. But you have. You've judged them worthy of love. Even it cost you everything. And that is how Jesus loves. And when he heard the words, he thought of his new friend waiting by the lake. And now you know Papa's heart, she added. There is so much more to that story. And I just thought about how we can make assumptions about who God is. We can make choices. Wade Berlson's a, a blogger, he wrote, I have been infected with the delusion that God had a holy hatred for sinners and Jesus had a longing love for sinners. I wrongly believe that the Father desired to punish sinners because of his holy nature of justice. But Jesus offered himself to the Father as a substitute for undeserving sinners. My notion of a bipolar God bothered me, but I just assumed that justice and love were mutually exclusive. Now I've begun to see that God is love. And when he moves to save his people, he saves them in love, through love, by love, and for love through Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son are one in motive, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, from John 3:16. So as I kind of look at Joel, I really am challenged. Do I have to be like everyone else and kind of get caught up in this, this cycle, you know, this cycle of um, where I'm, I'm just, it's, it's constantly, um, in, in, it's certainly, if you look through the Old Testament, they're caught up in, in crisis, they're caught up in repentance, then they're caught up in captivity, and they're just up and down, up and down. And, um, and I was just thinking how much we need to just come to, to really to Jesus and ask and say, I leave judgment with you, Lord. That's your prerogative. You understand that concept. And I am called to come into your presence and to be loved, to receive your love, and then to reach out in love. I'm called to be wise. I'm called to hear your voice. But I don't kind of don't do this alone. I'm called, Lord, to say, Holy Spirit, just come. Give me wisdom. Give me strength. Give me the words so that I might speak hope to the people I meet. And, and I just feel that actually uh, the, the, the nations of the Old Testament, and particularly Joel, they had forgotten that what they were called to do. And as a consequence, it, they kind of paid a heavy price. And I think we can pay that heavy price if we don't go back and back up to, to do what God has called us to do, is to be different people, people who carry his presence. Never said it's going to be easy. Never going, said it's going to be well-received. But actually, you can't be just carrying his presence. And that's a very beautiful thing. And I brought my, my rope. I thought it was a lovely image John um, spoke of at the start. And, um, and I was just kind of reminded, just really, that if, for those who weren't here, that sense that, um, I'm trying to think of his name now, uh, a, a preacher who, uh, he was quite, he was uh, in Victoria, Victor, I think it was Victor, late Victorian times, uh, went often to the States 
and he, said, he drew a circle or uh, got a piece of string and he stood in it and he said, when revival comes, I want it to start with me. And I think, and this is just a personal opinion, that had the Israelites truly, in a sense, stood in a circle and asked the Lord to actually revive them, then their story would have been a very different story. And, uh, and I kind of want you just to stand with me now. Um, if you'd like to stand, if you're able, the band's going to come up. There's going to be an opportunity for anyone who likes to receive some prayer. Um, but just, just have, have a word of prayer. Father, I'm just kind of mindful that as we started this course, it's, it's quite a hard subject, Joel, and there are many things that are quite tricky to understand. But I just ask that, Lord, you would teach us to live differently, to not be the judge and the jury and the sentencer, that actually we would stand, in a sense, in a circle and say, Lord, take me, use me in whichever way is possible. And that freely we would gather with our friends, our brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters by adoption. And at times we would just come and gather at the feet of Jesus. And we'd break some bread, we'd drink some wine, we'd tell some stories, and we'd receive his forgiveness because that is what we need to go out for another week to carry his presence so that we can encourage others to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and receive peace and know they're cherished and know they're loved, know they're special, that they might receive that understanding that they are adopted and they move into a place where they are just loved sons and loved daughters. And I just pray that we might, if we have any junk where we've seen God as, as bitter, as mean, as vindictive, that these are lies, that we would just maybe just get a bit of prayer over it, that we'd maybe take them off and we'd leave them behind, just that sense of leaving them at the cross really, because why would we want to carry that junk with us, those lies with us? And so we just say, thank you, Lord, that you love us so dearly. Amen.